there's a lot of opportunity in radiology, just given the complexity of the specialty, you know, and I think to some degree, the fact that it is so subspecialized builds opportunity for those that are more entrepreneurial. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Radiology Report podcast, where we are having conversations with the leaders transforming radiology today. You can find us on radiologyreportpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Arnold. Today, we are joined by Andrew Colbert. Andrew Colbert joined Ziegler in 2006 as a founding member of the corporate finance healthcare practice. Andrew has represented 28 radiology groups and MSOs on M&A transactions. Andrew specializes in advising physician groups on strategic and financing alternatives, including mergers, acquisitions, private equity transactions, joint ventures, and strategic partnerships. I'm especially excited to have Andrew on the show because, you know, our audience, so many of you are private practice physicians or considering going into private practice. And so hearing about the world of finance might be something you weren't exposed to in early training, but will quickly become very important to you as you look to steward your group through the future. So Andy, welcome to the show. Hey, Daniel, thanks so much for having me. So Andy, tell me a little bit about your background and how you wound up leading healthcare at Ziegler. So I grew up actually in in rural Massachusetts in a family of physicians. So my dad is a retired primary care physician. My brother also followed in his footsteps and went on to be an internal medicine physician and grew up visiting my dad at his solo practice office and watching as he tried to go from one office to two offices and just the challenges of him having to navigate the business side of medicine, something that you know, quite candidly was never taught to him, right? He went to medical school to learn how to be a good doctor, how to treat patients, but no one ever taught him how to look at a, a profit and loss statement, how to negotiate with insurance companies, how to negotiate with vendors, how to market your practice, right? And you know, I think one of the things that just became apparent to me as I grew up and watched this was you know, doctors fundamentally go into medicine often because of a passion for what they want to do and make the world a better place and be you know, super cutting edge, but they often don't realize that they're also going into business. And I really enjoy the opportunity to partner and work with these private practice physician groups across the country and effectively help them really build value for their practices such that their their ownership, their equity has real value and helping them make strategic decisions around when to raise capital, when to partner, when to think about growing the business, potentially selling the business, all kinds of things that they never really get trained in or get taught. And it's been really, really exciting. You know, I've been doing it for about 20 years now. Came over to Ziegler in 2006. Ziegler is about a hundred year old firm. The firm's legacy actually is financing hospitals and nursing homes. So it has a really strong history of providing capital, the bedrock of the healthcare communities and always wanted to get into the advisory space. And so we came on in 06, myself and another partner, and 
now built out the advisory practice to about half the firm's business at this point. So we're about 50 M&A professionals, really one of the most active advisory shops that's exclusively healthcare. And we, we really touch all, all segments of the healthcare universe. Our radiology practice has been one of our most active. Uh, it's been really fun to get to build that up from the get-go, starting with some early work I did in 2006 and seven, and you know, fast forward, I've now worked on 28 radiology transactions, over three and a half billion dollars of total deal value, working with groups really all across the country, from you know groups in the East Coast to West Coast to South, all the way even up to Alaska. So it's it's been a lot of fun. Some are more professional-oriented, hospital-based groups. Others own their own imaging centers. And that in and of itself can be its own dynamic, helping them think about hospital joint ventures and strategies around monetizing the imaging centers. Do you keep it inside the practice, out of the practice? How do you navigate tax efficiencies, all kinds of stuff? And quite candidly, we just try to have fun doing what we're doing. We build a culture that I think is pretty unique very different from your typical Wall Street firm. We're also lucky to be a founder and employee-owned firm. So we're kind of thankfully removed from the fray of, of all the commercial banking chaos that's been going and, and a lot of the noise in the public markets and you know, try to bring just really good old-fashioned advice to our clients. So I take it your parents are okay that you bucked the trend and didn't become a doctor because at least you came into a world supporting doctors and their growth over time. You know, what is it as you look back at the last almost two decades of work in healthcare banking, why is it that, that you think radiology was became so front and center in your practice? How did that become? Is it, you know, one deal and then all of a sudden you became known as the person? Is it because of the market and the activity or what drew you to radiology and how did that build over time? Yeah, yeah. You know, I never sat down in 2006 with a business plan that was focused on radiology any more than any other vertical. But, you know, at the time in those early 2000s, the teleradiology boom was was quite, you know, rising high and got to work with a couple early teleradiology companies and help them monetize through through various transactions. And from there, I started to really get intrigued with some of the on-site groups that are more hospital coverage and, and, and more kind of traditional you know, boots on the ground, if you will. I actually worked with a group in Chicago that was really one of the first groups to consider some form of outside capital. And at the time, I had gotten to know Rich Whitney, who was the CEO of Rad Partners, and was actually introducing him to this group just as they were kind of building the Rad Partners business plan on the back of a napkin and, and getting the funding from NEA. And, and so this, this actually became really the first practice that, that actually formed Rad Partners in many ways and kind of the first significant group. And the CEO of this group went on to become the chief medical officer of Rad Partners and take a large role in, in their strategic direction. Fast forward, was intrigued with other players coming into radiology and how to kind of expand the aperture of strategic constituents. And so I actually went down and pitched Mednax on 
them getting into radiology, you know, they had historically been in anesthesia and neonatal, you know, women's and, and children's care services and were publicly traded and, and looking at another sector that they could really grow. You know, I pitched them on radiology as a very highly fragmented market with a lot of growth and and a lot of upside with with relatively few players that were focused on it. And, and they were intrigued. They ended up moving forward with the VRAD acquisition, which was certainly a pretty significant deal for them that I helped introduce and it was about a $500 million entry point and then represented the first on-site practice in Nashville that they ended up partnering with. And then from there went on to build a pretty formidable on-site presence. And so that was fun to get to kind of pull someone from outside the market, as you would imagine. My success in those early transactions kind of led to introductions to friends and colleagues and other groups that were intrigued and wanted to kind of learn about what had happened. Eventually ended up getting introduced to a group up in uh, Connecticut that was a really interesting group that had both a strong hospital presence, but also an outpatient imaging presence. You know, at the time, you know, this was probably, you know, five or six years ago, there were very two totally separate models. There was kind of the outpatient imaging players that were purely technical, and then there were the more professional oriented models, but there was really a very strong differentiation and, and kind of wall between the two. I went to the market and pitched folks on really the value of combining technical and professional mm-hmm. and the value of bringing the imaging centers into the fold with the hospital relationships and eventually you know, got Mednax to the table there as well as helped them negotiate a joint venture with their health system, Hartford Health, and kind of did what now is more commonplace, but back then was kind of the first of its kind, which was really a three-way joint venture between, you know, radiology group, a health system, and a new capital partner. And, you know, interestingly enough, you know, then you saw Rad Partners getting into outpatient imaging, eventually represented Desert Radiology that got them into the outpatient game. And then, of course, you saw the emergence of, of U.S. radiology backed by Welsh Carson, where you know a big part of their thesis is the outpatient imaging component and so was was actually able to represent three or four large groups that ended up joining their model and and have been very successful the latest being uh, a very successful combination of two independent groups in southern new jersey that came together to, to kind of form a real behemoth in the south jersey market and brought them together in parallel with the transaction with U.S. radiology. So it was pretty fun to get to do that. You know, we're, we're just fortunate. I'm, I'm so thrilled to have been able to be at the table at, at so many of these transactions and pleased that folks are happy with the work we've done and looking forward to doing more in the future. Really appreciate that history, Andy. And, you know, I had a question here around what does a typical transaction look like? And to try and put yourself in our audience's shoes, our podcast is really geared toward emerging leaders in radiology. So people who are radiologists typically, but maybe they want to 
run their practice or they want to become a partner in a practice or they're entrepreneurial in nature in some way. So maybe similar to your dad, you know, don't have that formal business training, but they're trying to think ahead about these things. So talk us through like, what does a typical transaction look like? And I realize that's a hard question because not every transaction is a $500 million transaction or, you know, an IPO. I imagine a lot of times it's a, you know, 15 person partnership that is looking to, you know, raise some capital in some way. So maybe you can talk us through different types of transactions or, you know, take the question wherever it may go. Yeah, absolutely. So usually the place I start is kind of describing it as if you're a chef that owns your own restaurant and you kind of just take one pool of money out of the business every year. That's how most practices operate, right? Whether it's one partner or 50 partners, everyone just kind of gets a pool at the end of the year. And, and often don't really think about how much of those funds are related to your ownership stake in the business versus your clinical responsibilities for your work. And so really the first place we start, right, when we start engaging with a client or a prospect is kind of bifurcating their compensation into really two buckets. What are they getting paid as it relates to the clinical services that they're performing. So call it, what's the market wage that they're making? And then what is the piece over and above that, that is effectively their distribution stream. And that's really fundamentally, you know, how these deals are structured is you're kind of looking at their total compensation and then saying, okay, what slice of that pie is effectively your ownership distribution, which, you know, I would say industry standard is anywhere between 25 to 40% of your total compensation. Obviously, that's highly variable dependent on the profitability of the practice. If you're a pure professional group where all of your income is just professional reading services, you know, it's probably not as much passive income, right? Then if you're a practice that actually owns technical assets and imaging centers, you, know, you probably have a bit more passive income. And so fundamentally, what you're actually monetizing in these deals is that piece of passive income. And so really the first place you start is you kind of say, okay, what did the partners make last year relative to what the market salary is? Right. And that delta or that differential is kind of what's available for monetization. And then that piece of it gets valued at at a multiple. That multiple is obviously highly negotiated and highly dependent. If it's a 50 person group and a big pool of earnings, right, the higher the overall profit pool that can be purchased, typically the higher multiple, as well as you know, the revenue growth of the business itself. If it's a group that's been growing at 30% a year, that's going to be worth a lot more than a group that's been steady state or declining. And then also just the demographics of the market, right? Is it an attractive market that's got organic growth and real positive fundamentals versus a market that is maybe a bit more saturated? All that stuff kind of goes into a subjective analysis and that's a big part of the role we play as the advisor is, is really helping guide the investors and the counterparties to how they should look at the business and how they should think about the growth prospects and the fundamentals. But ultimately, that stream gets valued. 
and it's often translated into evaluation that the majority of it is usually cash at close and then some portion of it call it 70 75 percent cash at close and then maybe 25 or 30 percent would be in the form of rollover equity which means retained equity in the parent entity such that you know you get kind of the benefit of of a nice liquidity event at closing that check is subject to capital gains, which is nice. So it's a 20%, you know, or 24% tax rate versus your 37% tax rate. So you get the benefit of that arbitrage for trading income that you would have had to pay a higher tax rate at the lower tax. Plus you get to be able to put that in the bank or invest that right in kind of compounds or time value of money. And then you take that piece that you retain in equity and you get to roll that in and you know, ride the opportunity with the investor. And certainly there's no guarantee here, but the typical model, you know, usually you're seeing returns anywhere from two and a half to five to even, you know, sometimes 10 times return. So it's not uncommon for that retained equity to end up being worth more than the initial payment. Plus you get to roll it tax deferred, which is nice. So you know, unlike the piece you take out where you have to pay taxes on it, the piece you roll, you defer the taxes, so you get the benefit of that full value of equity and you get more shares because you don't have to pay taxes on it. That was a very helpful explanation, especially for folks without a finance background. So I appreciate that. And I think folks should bookmark it and listen to it again. Because it's really this idea of bifurcating market wages versus distributions is, I think, probably the least well understood piece of the business of medicine. And, and how do you create value over time as a physician? So I really appreciate that explanation. I wonder if you could give me a few examples of what it is that is driving a group to do a transaction. So is it 10 doctors are just wanting to retire and there's no one to take over the practice? Is it market competition? Is it, you know, what are the types of things that are most typically driving someone to give you a call? It's a great question. Yeah, I, I would say there's usually no kind of singular rationale. It's often very unique case by case, but maybe I'll break it into a few buckets. You know, in some cases, the group has quite candidly just gotten too big. And I think as a democratic equal vote model, right, when you get to be 50 partners and you're now the practice president, you know, often in those models, the practice president is making the same wages as all the other partners. And, you know, quite candidly, usually still has clinical requirements in addition to administrative responsibilities. And oftentimes in those groups, you know, the practice president kind of has to negotiate with the group just to take administrative days and others kind of view it as pulling away from the clinical responsibilities. And, you know, I think that's one of the biggest challenges is when you get to be a hundred million dollar revenue business, a $50 million revenue business. These are large companies in the grand scheme of things, right? And if you weren't a physician group, if you were a chain of restaurants or a manufacturing company, 
you know, there would be a pretty sizable infrastructure, right, from both a CEO to a finance team to quite a bit of data and KPIs and reportings. And I think one of the challenges is in many of these large groups, they've kind of just grown over time, never really meaning to get that big, but they kind of get to a size. And then before they know it, you know, their $50, $100 million revenue, and yet they haven't really kind of built the infrastructure that's truly required to support an organization of that size, right? They're usually not operating a crew of financials. They're not putting budgets together always, but yet the physicians have kind of gotten used to taking a distribution stream on a pretty nimble infrastructure. So there's this trade-off, right, between you could obviously add more infrastructure, but it's going to come at a cost of having to take less in terms of distributions. And so, you know, I think groups like that are perfect candidates for an outside partner because the outside partner already has all that infrastructure built and can bring that from an IT system, from a financial management, from an M&A perspective, from a HR compliance and bring that at a very nominal cost because you're able to kind of divide it across a big base versus if that group was having to go build it themselves. Plus those partners get to take some liquidity, which often in their models, most partnerships today, when you retire, you know, you get a nice thank you card, maybe a dinner and you get (laughs) bought out for a measly share of your accounts receivable, right? But you're not really getting the full value of your equity, right? And that's why when, you know, most practices, when people call themselves an equity owner, really what that means is you're just getting treated from a compensation perspective like a partner, but that equity doesn't really have true residual value, right? You can't sell it like you would a stock and actually get value for it. And I think that's a big downside, right, for folks that are thinking about retiring in the next five to 10 years is there's really not a a liquidity event there versus, you know, these deals provide that. And so, you know, I think these deals can be very attractive for those large groups. I think it can also be attractive for the small and middle-sized groups that are faced with a lot of increasing costs. Yeah, they have to decide, do they want to invest in a work list product? Do they want to invest in you know, a marketing manager or a business manager or AI tools? And you, know, you get to a point in a practice size where it's hard to kind of buy fractional labor, right? It's hard to have a half CFO or a half-time marketing person. And you either kind of have to go all in or not. And I think often the tendency is to not bring those people on. And then your growth is kind of stunted. And so, yeah, I think for those smaller and mid-sized groups, it's often they kind of max out their growth or they max out their ability to compete locally without someone kind of coming in and, and really helping. And listen, they could make those investments themselves. They could all say, okay, we're all going to take a 25% of our earnings and we're going to put it back in the business. But those are hard decisions to make if you're not 100% bought into your business plan, right? And I think oftentimes those are hard votes to get past, you know, if it comes to a full partnership without a partner coming in and kind of helping navigate that process. What is the state of the market 
today. Uh, I just read this morning, this has been the slowest first quarter for global M&A since 2013. Is that true in healthcare? Is that true in radiology? What's going on? And by the way, if you're just listening to this podcast, it's March 29th of 2023. It's two weeks since Silicon Valley Bank blew up. Interest rates continued to be you know, rising. So what's going on? So I would characterize the market as still active, but cautious. I would say when you hear the headlines around deal activity and slowdown, often that's really more tied to some of these kind of very large transactions that are obviously the bigger needle movers. In the physician space, the majority of deals are probably sub $100 million transactions, right? I mean, when you're thinking about the five, the 10, the 15, the 20 person groups that are coming together. And so those are still continuing and happening, but probably not hitting the headlines to the same degree. You know, I would say in the radiology space specifically, you know, certainly there are a handful of players that are private equity backed that have really emerged as real market leaders and are you know, spending some time in this market, really integrating their businesses and doing some additional work around, yeah, kind of driving efficiencies and optimization. But they're absolutely still out there talking to prospective groups and, and engaging in, in merger discussions. That being said, I think the bar is higher just because the cost of their capital is now higher. I mean, oftentimes the model is They go, they get equity capital to start, but then they look to finance a large portion of their growth through debt capital, through loans from banks and and other institutions. And, you know, if interest rates were previously, you know, five or 6% and they're now 10 or 11%, that obviously significantly increases the cost of the deal. And so I would say the bar is just higher in terms of deals needing to be more strategic. In some cases, the multiples have come down. But, you know, what we're finding is, you know, these are relatively illiquid transactions, right, where most groups that we work with are very happy, very successful groups. They're not in distress situations, so there's no requirement for them to sell. And so oftentimes, if they're not getting a fair price and a fair multiple, they're just going to not sell. And so, you know, what that does is that kind of means that the pricing remains more or less constant. It just means that there's either fewer buyers or the buyers are going to take more time to kind of make sure that they're really 100% committed. And so I think that's what you're seeing, probably kind of less window shopping, if you will, and more the folks that are doing deals are the folks that are really well-educated and very disciplined and committed to the sector. Can you give a range of what valuations have typically been in your experience? You know, it's usually a multiple of earnings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it's usually EBITDA multiple driven. I would say it's hard to just kind of average because it does depend on the model and the size of the group, right? If it's 5 million of earnings versus 15 versus, you know, 20 versus 30, right? The higher the EBITDA, the higher the multiple. Also, if it's the technical 
income stream where mm. it's more outpatient driven, those income streams are typically at a lower valuation because there's capital expenditures, right? The imaging center requires equipment and that needs to be upkeep and reinvested in versus if it's just a professional group, the EBITDA really is the cash flow. There's no real capital requirements there. Mm -hmm. So, but, you know, I mean, listen, I, I think historically you would see multiples anywhere from kind of the high single digits to low double digit kind of multiple ranges. And that kind of is across the board, the higher the EBITDA, the higher the growth rate, the more the multiple goes up. And, you know, oftentimes the first thing we do is, you know, dig in and kind of give someone a, an assessment of where we think the value is. You know, that's usually kind of the first place we start when we're talking to a group and, and just kind of give them a view of what it could be worth. And even if they, they're not interested in transacting now, it can be sometimes helpful just to have a place of comparison if they want to look back a year or two later and say, okay, well, where, where do we want to go? Where do we want to get to? And how do we kind of think about how we build shareholder value? Yeah. You mentioned interest rates sort of depressing maybe what people are able to pay right now. And so then to your point, well, if I've got a good business, that's fine. I just won't sell right now. I can imagine the other thing depressing valuations would be margins going down. Are you seeing margins go down? One of the reasons maybe that could be is, you know, radiologist salaries are hyper competitive right now. You know, my wife is actually a neuroradiology fellow. All of her friends are getting jobs and the offers that they're getting, you know, right now are just totally off the charts versus what oh, they were yeah. three years ago. And then meanwhile, you've got reimbursements coming down. So I imagine that then depresses margins. So what are you seeing there right now? Yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think that's a great point. I mean, obviously, when you think about the value of a practice, back to kind of our earlier conversation, what you're really talking about is the differential between what the partners are making and what the effectively the employed physicians are making, right? And as the compensation for employed physicians keeps going up and it kind of starts getting closer and closer to the partners, the profit in the practice kind of starts getting smaller and smaller, right? And there is a potential where it's so expensive to hire that you're kind of paying your employed physicians effectively the same that the partners are making, right? And that is a real risk. And so, you know, I think you've got to really think about how you offset that with whether it's leveraging extenders, whether it's being more efficient with revenue cycle management, whether it's, you know, spreading overhead costs over a bigger pool of physicians. But yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely impacting a lot of groups. I would say that's, you know, on one hand could be a rationale around why groups should consider potential transactions is it's kind of a good time to monetize while you still have a profit to to monetize and it's still attractive but on the other hand it you know could mean that if some of those costs have already gone into effect the value per partner now is kind of less than what it might have been a year or two ago and so the value in a transaction might not be as attractive right and so you know i think that's something also that makes these conversations sometimes challenging and 
you know, all part of the calculus of does it make sense or not? And when's the right time? And how do you think about it? But yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we worked with a group last year that owned imaging centers. And, and one of the big reasons they wanted to partner was just you know, the rising costs of techs and staff and overhead. You know, they had probably over 100 non-clinical employees and managing that whole infrastructure was just a big burden for them. And so to be able to kind of offload that to a national player that had standardizations and protocols and kind of could take all of that while they could keep the clinical practice and still own and run that to them was a very attractive balance where they could get some proceeds up front and attractive multiple on the technical side and still keep the ownership of their professional practice. You started the podcast sharing your background about your dad, you know, starting with one practice and then building a second and, and trying to learn the business and you know, build equity value above and beyond just the market wages. How should a young radiologist be thinking about their career? Because right now it seems like those options may, you know, do they still exist for them to, you know, build equity value and build meaningful sort of wealth beyond just, you know, hitting as big an RVU number as they can? It's a great question. I mean, I think starting out now as a young practicing physician, I think you want to think really thoughtfully around how you build equity value. And listen, I think early in your career, I always tell people the best approach is just kind of put your head down and do good work. And I think the more you kind of prove to the market that you're super high quality, super high caliber, the relationships and the value will come. But certainly at some point in your career, you got to start thinking about what are some passive sources of income that can kind of offset some of your professional services income? Because I, I am a big believer in being able to invest in whether it be service lines like interventional radiology and, and being able to do procedures right outside the hospital or ownership in, in diagnostic imaging centers. The more you can augment some of your professional reading skills with some of these other passive streams, I, I think will create more wealth opportunities. In addition, you know, thinking about growth very thoughtfully, there are some groups that just have kind of grown just to grow and, you know, not all revenue is good revenue, right? And, and I think one of the mistakes a lot of groups make is not really thinking about the profit margin on all growth and thinking about the business from a fully allocated profit perspective, because if the payer mix is less attractive in that market, you know, you could feasibly be paying your, your radiologist more per RVU than the revenue rate per RVU, right? And, and you're kind of upside down. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity in radiology, just given the complexity of the specialty, you know, and I think to some degree, the fact that it is so subspecialized builds opportunity for those that are more entrepreneurial and kind of use that as an angle, right, to kind of demonstrate expertise and subspecialty as a way to kind of differentiate. You know, I think radiology is a sector that is often underappreciated by the consumer, the patient, right? Most patients are not overly 
attuned to who their reading radiologist is. And I think that's a big opportunity for radiology groups is trying to be more patient-centered and patient-focused and thinking of themselves as not just a consultant, the ordering physician, but ultimately building a relationship with that patient directly. Because I think the tighter that relationship can be, the more radiology starts to actually have a role in true population health management and the greater the leverage will be with the payers and the managed care organizations around radiology as a real differentiated service line that really impacts patient choice from a health plan perspective, as well as downstream costs. Because the alternative, right, is if the patient remains indifferent, you could envision a theoretical where it kind of becomes more like pathology, where it's just kind of a commoditized service. And I think that's where we all know radiology is so highly subspecialized and highly complex, but I think the onus is on the radiologist to kind of educate the community a little more about the importance of that subspecialty care and the true impact and really help the patient better understand what the follow-ups should be following up with the patient to make sure that, you know, if a lung nodule was detected and there was a recommended rescan in six months or 12 months, it'd be great if the radiology group actually took the onus to make those follow-ups and really kind of connecting the care dots. Because I think that's ultimately what's going to drive a big business opportunity. And so I guess in a nutshell, it's kind of changing the paradigm from being a passive radiologist, where you're just kind of taking a report that's sent to you and reading it, to being a proactive radiologist where you're thinking about, okay, how do I partner with primary care groups and help them monetize their data sets to identify all the women that are over 50 that should be getting mammograms that haven't, right? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, how do I help think about better detection of prostate cancer using, you know, MRI instead of just a traditional PSA test, right? And it's, you know, all those types of initiatives, to me, that's where that young radiologist can say, wow, we have an ability to actually completely bend the cost curve, but it's going to come through a consultative approach with primary care, with cardiologists, with oncologists, as opposed to just being a reactive specialty. Well, that was a phenomenal answer and a great place to leave it. Andy, I learned a lot during this conversation. So thank you so much. And, um, you know, folks want to learn more, highly recommend reaching out to Andy Colbert. I know our, our audience is a bit of a different talk for them, and I think they'll benefit immensely from it. So I really appreciate your time and energy today. It was great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Feel free to reach out and uh, look forward to keep the conversation going. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Radiology Report podcast. Be sure to visit us at the radiologyreportpodcast.com or subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts to join us for our next episode. We are always looking for great guests. If you have someone you'd like to hear on the show, please get in touch with us online.